Hey there, security geeks. I hope you are having a great day. Thanks for joining us again on the State of Security podcast. As always, I am your host, Brent Houston. I'm the CEO of Microsoft Inc. and now the multi-year host of this podcast. Today's going to be an interesting day. I'm, I'm actually down south today. I'm sitting in the sunshine. It's a beautiful day outside. There's beautiful blue sky and lots of clouds and a little bit of breeze. I'll let you guys try to figure out where I am. We can play like where's Waldo, but in this case we can do where's Brent. And let me give you a hint. It's further north from the equator than you think I am. I'll leave it at that. So if you know me, uh, you'll know I'm probably not where you think I am. It is a beautiful March day, as I said, and I can't think of a better way to kick off this wonderful spring season than to sit down with a youngster who is interested in cybersecurity. You folks know I love uh, working with folks who are about to enter into our career path. I hope uh, that this young man considers it. And on that, this is going to be an odd, a uh, little different than usual podcast version because uh, I have as my guest with me, I have Vale Tolpagan. He is currently an undergraduate student at the Georgia Institute of Technology. He's very interested in cybersecurity and deception technology in particular. He reached out to me via a friend of a friend, and I said, listen, he, you've got some great questions. Why don't we turn this into a podcast? And so uh, I just really thank you, Vale, for, for joining me, and please tell the folks hello and a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you, first of all, very much, Mr. Houston, for having me. I'm very excited to have the opportunity to talk with you today and ask you a few questions about your experience and about deception technology and cybersecurity in general. I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Uh, so I'm, as, uh, as you said, I'm a student at Georgia Tech. I'm a computer science major, and I'm really interested in cybersecurity and entrepreneurism, and I want to learn as much as I can uh, about all the different uh, aspects, but uh, specifically, I'd love to get your thoughts about the deception area of cybersecurity, which is more your specialty uh, from what I, I've read and heard. So I'd love to get it started by asking you an introductory question about how honeypot technologies are really deployed uh, wide scale in industry. And I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about where the industry uses honeypots, at what scale, what uh, kind of companies use them, all that information. So honeypots are really sort of interesting, Vale. And what is, I think, fascinating about them is that they date so far back in history. I, they date all the way back, as far as we can tell, to the time of Caesar. Uh, and they came forward in time. There's always been this idea of offering your, your adversary something of a deceptive value and utilizing that in a strategic way. As you kind of move that forward into the computer era and the era of industrial controls, that started out as kind of a process called canaries. And a canary was what we think of as a honeypot now. It was a, a, a component that if interacted with basically sang like a canary and alerted you uh, to danger like a canary in a coal mine. Um, these tools are, uh, are date back as far back as the early 90s in some of the government control documentation uh, that was provided to utility companies. So as that technology matured and, and you saw commercial products developed in the 80s and 90s and open source products uh, moving forward to today, there's been this whole backlog of deception technology, honeypot technology uh, that spans the history of computing. So where is that today? That's a great question. Like, where do we see it and how prevalent is it? It is one of those things that um, 
we don't really know how prevalent it is because obviously the the tool and the technique only really works if the attacker doesn't understand that they're interacting with uh, a, a, a trap, right? Um, yeah. So a lot of folks, you know, as you might expect, they all, a lot of folks are reticent to say, oh, yeah, we caught <laughs> this attacker because they were hammering on our honeypot um, or they tripped a, you know, a honeypot detection um, because the the fact that, Attackers don't know that an organization uses it, adds to its, its capability. Um, now, in terms of how widely used it is today, we believe, we know that in highly regulated environments, uh, it has a decent footprint. There are a lot of organizations in the industrial control space, utility space, um, banking, uh, even some government agencies who use this technology pretty readily as a part of their overall detection platform. Um, so I hope that that answered your question, Vale, or, or you know, did it give you more of a feel for for the width of it? Yeah, that, I think you got to the heart of what I was trying to figure out, which is what you know, where where is it? How is it deployed today? And I think that you answered that very well. Thank you. Uh, continuing on that train of thought, though, so is, are the products that are available today uh, commercially accessible to small businesses? What's the kind of pushing that a little bit further even? What are the different price tiers of these kinds of deception technologies versus you know, things like antivirus or firewalls, is it something that's accessible or is it still more focused for enterprise? So I think we, in order to have that pricing discussion, we have to first kind of split the deception technologies into two tiers. Um, the, the way to do that is really low interaction uh, honeypots and high interaction, uh, we'll call them honeypots. Now, when I say honeypot, it could be a single instance. It could be a, a deployment that is distributed. It could be an entire modeled uh, network or application. But really, this comes down to how much interaction will an attacker have with the, uh, the fake interface or fake data or system. And the, the low interaction devices really emulate the initial connection. They're, they are looking to identify attackers at that surface layer. I got, in, I got a connection or I received some, some interaction that I shouldn't have gotten because I'm not real and I'm going to alert on that. Um, the higher interaction stuff is going to be things that emulate the full depth and complexity of an environment, be that a command shell or a full level of a service or a full level of a web application or even in some cases a simulated entire network. Um, and so the attacker is able to move around and uh, interact in a, in a deeper level, issue different commands, move between different aspects of the system, um, all while being carefully contained and studied. So if you look at those two breakdowns, low interaction honeypots are, are pretty affordable. Um, you've got instances in the freeware, open source, even shareware type of approach um, that you can run on a, on a single system for well under $50. Um, and then you've got all the way up to enterprise class systems like the product I make uh, at HoneyPoint, which you know, starts at less than 1000 for an entry level, and a full, you know, full deployment is in the tens of thousands. Now, if you were to switch that to something like an open source uh, high interaction product. There are products out there that do that. The cost of the software in many cases 
is you know, free or let's call it uh, quite affordable. Um, but the complexity of building and operating those tools are often such that they require an expensive engineer or a, someone with a, a, a significant IT background in order to operate and certainly uh, in order to analyze the output of uh, that high interaction environment. If you go from that open source high interaction environment and roll that forward into some of these really complex deployments, um, there are honey nets in a box that you can kind of buy. There are some vendors who do that as a, as a managed service, and that gets up close to enterprise software pricing. It, it's not unexpected to see six-figure uh, yearly costs for some of that type of deception technology. Um, so I think it really depends at the small business level. Um, do you really want to know what the attacker's doing after they get in the system and, and how deep do you want to study them uh, versus simply detect that they are operating in your environment and be able to take action. Um, if that works for you as a small mid-sized business and, and you're not so much interested in the academic study of uh, threat actors, then I, I believe low interaction is quite affordable for you and is in fact uh, a fantastic and capable component of your overall detection strategy. Uh, did that kind of get to the, the core of it, Vale, or were you looking for more specifics around uh, that's the perfect. different types of platforms? Great, great. No, I think yeah. that's perfect. That was great. Thank you. And so kind of speaking to the different tiers that you mentioned, there are lots of these different deception technology vendors that exist that for the most part, from what I can tell at least, correct me if I'm wrong, they tend to focus on one specific or a couple niche areas of the deception technology services market. So for instance, like uh, credential monitoring or as you said, the low interaction. Um, Honeypoint's technology, your technology, seems a little bit more general, and it seems to be able to adapt to a lot of different scenarios. And kind of one of the questions that I wanted to get your thoughts on is how, uh, or rather, what do you think is the best uh, or is the most relevant deception technology for addressing the cybersecurity concerns of businesses in 2019? So I think there's a couple of things here. Um, I, obviously, I'm pretty biased, so I love the tool set <laughs> that I've created. Um, and I built it to be a Swiss Army knife of uh, detection and deception. Um, it's now been on the market for 16 years, so we have been able to uh, really build out a variety of different mechanisms and integrations, and we've taken a lot of core uh, incidents and problems that we've worked on over the years and built capability into the product uh, to help us should those situations arise again. So what you're seeing is a very mature uh, product in Honeypoint. Now, that said, I think you're, you're asking sort of what is the most bang for your buck in deception? Is that kind of what you're, what you're asking, Vale? Yeah, and I'm kind of thinking more in the technical sense. So what, you know, less, less of a vendor-specific thing, but what technologies or what uh, entry points for or that can be modeled using deception technology are going to give you the most bang for your buck. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. So let's, let's tie that back to what is the statistical likelihood or likely source of different attacker interactions that an organization might expect. So if, for example, 
<clears throat> we look at something like uh, password hacking. Um, if, okay. if I had an exposed interface um, of some application, Office 365 or uh, some webmail uh, application, it, it is okay. a common occurrence today for attackers to either grab leaked passwords or passwords that come from uh, other password breaches, identity breaches, and use those passwords against your instance. So in other words, you've got user Bob and user Mary, and they have uh, accounts out in the world somewhere. The places they have their user accounts, they get hacked. The user database contains their full name and their information and their cracked password. Attackers look at that and they grab that password. They figure out where user Bob and user Mary work and they try that password scheme against your exposed systems. If the user made bad choices, that is they use their password or a similar password, uh, i.e., you know, summer 2001, summer 2002, summer 2003. Attackers are pretty good at guessing. Um, so if they used a, a, a similar password scheme, then the attacker is going to use that credential to log in and, and gain access to, say, their webmail. And they may use that gotcha. to commit fraud. Okay? We call that business email compromise, and it's a very common attack. It, it then behooves us to create accounts that are solely linked to login and log off events that launch alerts. So that's a great use of deception technology. And then to populate those accounts right, and their stolen password hashes into places where we know attackers might be looking because we want to know the source of these attacks. So if, let's say we push that stuff out there, and an attacker logs into that account, we immediately know that we're under attack, know that someone has gained access to or is looking to gain access to these credentials, and we can take appropriate action like blocking different ranges, different source IPs, or, or different other information related to the indicators of compromise around these events. So I think there's a lot of use in, in that sort of proactive deception. Look at what's going on in the world and how people are being attacked, and how can you create deception techniques that act like alerting uh, mechanisms for yourself. There's a lot of value in that. Same thing can be said for things like phishing. Um, if you know that accounts, that, that uh, addresses have come in, phishing uh, messages have come in, and you see them, um, it, if you've got accounts, these fake accounts set up already, and you want to sort of get sources and gain indicators of compromise and, and other threat intelligence that you can then use to block out the attacker, it doesn't necessarily uh, create a problem to log in and leak intentionally those credentials to bring them into, let's say, a honeypot instance of Office 365 or an emulated counter phishing web application that looks like Office 365 but is really just a mechanism to capture their credentials and to capture the sources of that traffic so that you can block it for the real system. All of those types of tools and techniques are very, very useful, and there's a high return on them uh, it, for very minimal overhead. Interesting. Okay, and so when you're hypothetically, let's say you're applying those kinds of technologies like the anti-phishing systems, or the credential monitoring systems, how much work does it take for people to get started and to actually implement 
those solutions within their own networks or you know cloud systems, whatever wherever they're installing it. How much you know how much uh, knowledge does it take to be able to effectively set those systems up? Do you need an engineer? Those most of the time, uh, at least for Honeypoint and, and the users that we've talked to who are using uh, open source tools, <clears throat> most of the time that is the network admin, it's maybe a security team member, it's it, you know, not necessarily an IT engineer um, or you know, a, a specific type of engineer they're able to set these, de these deception and detection tools up in well under a day, of, uh, you know, a, a man day. Um, oftentimes, yeah. for example, in, in the Honeypoint model, uh, we have clients up and running within about two hours with a variety of emulated services. Maybe they're even in, in those two hours doing DNS black holing, and they've got a console and a couple of distributed sensors uh, out in the environment to gather events and to act as, as decoys. Um, they can do that in under two hours, clearly under a half day, um, and be up and operational. So it's pretty straightforward to implement these deception technologies within a, within a business. Absolutely, especially with low interaction uh, tools that uh, are designed specifically, you know, for the user experience. Um, the the more complex tools, you know, the higher the interaction um, desired, the more configuration and the more capability is going to be required to manage them. Um, they get, you know, but if you kind of start at I'm going to, to walk before I run, low interaction tools, uh, especially uh, tools that are designed for ease of use, not necessarily academic analysis, uh, make really great ways to get started. Um, you know, take for example, uh, Honeypoint Personal Edition. Um, this is a tool that has been around for you know, over a decade, uh, costs under $50, and you could deploy it on an old you know, Linux laptop um, or a Linux virtual machine and literally in a half an hour uh, be up and running and, and have a decoy out in your network that's emulating services and looking for attackers. Um, I have friends who run this in virtual machines. I have friends who run it on Raspberry Pis just to take them to Starbucks or uh, other coffee shops and public Wi-Fi instances where they just sit and leave them running for a couple hours and then <laughs> look at uh, what kind of data they got, what attacks did they see. Um, and these are very low cost, uh, easy to stand up ways to get started with deception technology. And from there, it's an easy growth process. Um, I've got some customers, for example, who rather than buying the enterprise product of Honeypoint, they have about you know, 15 or 20 of these Honeypoint personal editions, and they just <laughs> manually go every day and, and uh, you know, SSH or VNC uh, over SSH into these different little appliances and, and look for the traffic as opposed to having a, you know, an enterprise console and event manage, manager. Um, so it just depends on you know, what you're willing to do to manage it, but you can get up and running in no time. Yeah, awesome. Well, that's, that's good to hear. I was a little bit unsure. Uh, some of the tools that I looked at online were looked pretty complicated to get set up, but I'm glad to hear that it overall is a it's a pretty seamless setup process. Um, well, I have a I have a mother who uh, is in her 70s, and uh, she was technical in the mainframe age, um, and uh, I can tell you that she runs Honeypoint Personal Edition on her uh, on her Mac and um, uses it pretty heavily. We have given it to many senior citizens, um, friends of hers, 
that are kind of in her little uh, social circle, they run it. Um, we've given it to a number of uh, folks around the world who are not technical, uh, and, and they've run it, and, and it's turned out really well. Uh, in fact, we actually used to, we used to sell a, uh, an ultra-low-end uh, product. I, I'd have to even go back and think of what it was. Uh, <laughs> I think we called it like uh, Security Advisor or something like that. Uh, but it had, a, it had a couple of emulated services, and the interface looked like a stoplight. Um, it did some DNS checking and stuff like that, and the interface would turn, you know, literally show a picture of a stoplight or an icon of a stoplight down in the taskbar. And if the light was green, right, then no interaction had been received and the network was safe to use. And if it, if it got tampered with, the light would turn yellow or red and tell you, you know, what to, to do. And I think we called that like Honey Point Security Advisor or something like that. Um, but uh, <laughs> it, it's that easy. Uh, it doesn't take a yeah. lot to, uh, to get that level of detection. Yeah. Awesome. And so you kind of mentioned my next point during your discussion uh, with regards to management of these systems, and I know it's going to vary based on the level of system that you're implementing. So it's going to be different managing, as you said, a low interaction, single instance versus a honey net with a thousand high interaction systems running. But in general, how do you integrate deception technology into greater security operations. Does it, are you able to take these things and make them plug and play with CM systems or what's, what's kind of the standard approach to integrating information gathered through, from deception systems into the greater security posture or security operations of an organization? So the primary way this is done is of course through logs, right? Like every, every, every other system uh, in the enterprise, uh, you know, should be producing logs, and, and that's, logs are the currency of honeypots. Um, so log integration is critical. Uh, most of the commercial products, I can't think of any commercial products offhand that don't integrate directly uh, into the, the current logging technologies, whether that's uh, by sending events to a syslog uh, server or a sim or some other log management or ticketing tool, um, almost all of the, the uh, commercial products do, many of the open source uh, products do. Um, many of the event managers like Splunk and um, uh, let's say Logrhythm and some of these other tools, uh, AlertLogic, they also have the ability to go out and grab logs from systems. So if you've got a piece of open source software that maybe doesn't do SIM integration or doesn't have built-in syslog capability but can write a local log, a lot of these SIMs and, and log analysis tools can reach out, grab that log, and perform some sort of event analysis based on it. Um, that's that's the key. Now on HoneyPoint, for example, uh, we can send directly to the syslog. We can send directly to a Windows uh, account or activity log, uh, event management log. Um, or we also have a full what we call data extrusion mechanism that is called plugins that you can write your own uh, event logging uh, plugin that will write out a log of all the pieces of data that you desire from the event in whatever order and with whatever delimiter that you want. Um, and then the SIM can pick that up. So there, most of these products have matured to the point where they are that way. Where you run into issue is you've got folks who, who want to grab three or four different pieces of open source or they want to take this commercial product and this open source product and they want to plug them together and create a system and this, 
this makes one type of log and this makes another type and they're trying to do event management in this complex way, um, that can get tedious pretty quickly. Um, but if you pick a platform, pick a logging standard, and use products and tools that support that logging standard, uh, it, gets, it gets very, very easy to do. Now the second outcome veil uh, of some of these systems is not just logs, but some of them actually do packet capture. So packet capture is one of those things we made a decision not to do in HoneyPoint. Um, the way that we architecture the honeypots are uh, different and we don't do that innately. You can do it with a HoneyPoint uh, instance. It just requires a, a separate uh, instance of a packet capture tool. But let's say you've got a, a device that also produces PCAPs for uh, packet captures. Now, in addition to the logs, you've got to ingest those PCAPs somewhere, maybe into your SIM or into some other log and traffic analysis tool. And you have to sync up the time uh, in the events if you're doing analysis. So that's another layer uh, of difficulty and another layer of technical uh, capability that's required for the operation and monitoring of the environment. Um, that's fine. It, it, it is perfectly functional and many folks choose to do that. Uh, but it does up the cost, uh, the operational cost, of these sorts of, of tools. And I guess I would ask the, the, the customers that do this, I, I often have this question with them, is what is the return on investment for that time? Um, by grabbing things like, like PCAPs and, and these other what I would consider more in-depth or lower level analysis tools, um, the value has to really be there for that level of analysis. If what you're looking to do is simply know when an attacker is moving in your environment and be able to gather adequate information to take action, um, I don't know that you always need that deeper level uh, analysis data. Uh, I don't know that there's a great return on that depending on the goal. Did that make sense, Vail? Yeah, so I have one extension question uh, about that though. So is it not possible for what is considered or what I've read is considered next generation SIMs to run such packet analysis uh, output or captures, however you want to call it, um, through an automated system that uses things like machine learning for user entity behavior analytics or uh, understanding the uh, or identifying anomalous data packets or things like that, is it possible that those kinds of additional lower level logging systems that are used in conjunction with the deception technology, could those not be run through an automated system that would reduce the uh, associated cost? Absolutely. Um, it's not only possible, but you do see that in more mature organizations and certainly in uh, large, highly regulated organizations. So for example, if you were to go to a Fortune 100 uh, firm, you might see that kind of capability. You're much more likely to see it in, let's say, a really large bank than a credit union or you know, a, a community bank or a small or mid-sized business. When you get down to the small and mid-sized business uh, level like we, like we were talking about originally, many of those organizations don't even have SIMs. Many of them are still doing, if they're doing log analysis at all, they're doing that manually. Um, maybe they have some scripts that they've written to make that a little faster. But even SIM adoption um, or you know, log analytics tools, uh, I wouldn't say that those are common everyday occurrences in small and mid-sized businesses. Um, certainly, if you have the capability, if you're a Fortune 100 or you're in the high threat club, um, you know, you're a government agency, if you're a, if you're a you know, regulated bank with the assets and security team to support it, 
you absolutely should be running those tools, and, and th that level of machine learning and analytics does have value. But I have to be honest, we don't see that among more than a handful of our clients. Um, most folks are simply not at the maturity level uh, or the budget level to be able to afford that level of technology. Hmm. Okay. Okay, I, I get that. That makes sense. So switching gears a little bit, when I, I want to talk a little bit about the response that uh, people have once they detect an incident using deception technology. A little bit of a switch of train of topics here, uh, but specifically, What's the expectation from your customers or customers of deception technology when it comes to the businesses, the vendor's response once, a, once an intrusion is uh, detected using your technology? So I think that do you imagine this as a managed service? Is that what your question is like? Um, so we've deployed deception technology inside of a firm and we're remotely monitoring or managing that and, and something got detected? Yeah, let's, yeah, I think that's kind of where the focus of that question is. Okay. Uh, to be clear, we, we, deploy, we sell HoneyPoint to the customer or through other partners that manage that. So we don't manage uh, that deployment in-house. But I can talk through this okay. because I've, uh, you know, I am a user of, of HoneyPoint so, um, and other deception technologies. Um, so let's say that an event uh, is detected. And what immediately is expected is that an analyst will receive that alert, a, a security administrator, a system administrator, whoever is responsible for event analysis will receive that alert look at the event, and decide from that standpoint, from what is provided to them, uh, what is the next action. Now often this is, this is driven by what we call the incident response policy, or in many cases the event analysis policy. So they should usually have some set of criteria defined as to what the next step in the workflow is. In most cases where this is being used as uh, a, a detection technology, then the very next step is to isolate the source of the event. So in other words, if I've got an emulated service on the inside of the network and all of a sudden someone, you know, a workstation begins to port scan that or is trying passwords against it, then I'm going to shut down remotely the access of that workstation. I'm going to isolate it in the network, whether that's through ACLs or endpoint containment or switch, you know, switch modification, um, whatever is yeah. required to isolate that device. Okay? Um, and okay. then, of course, the next step is we're going to investigate how, you know, what is causing that anomaly on that device and what are the impacts of it. Then we're going to look what else has it done, right? So we're going to backtrace when, when from the time that we saw the anomaly begin, what else did it do, what else did it touch, and you go through the entire forensic uh, response process at that point. Okay. Okay. Now, and that's great, usually done – oh, sorry. No, I, no the, the great thing about this, Vale, is that if you think about honeypots, right, the idea that you're going to have a fake thing, so a fake service, you've got a, you have this fake web server, because it's fake, no one should really be messing with it, right? Like you don't – you don't yeah. scan the school, you know, the, the school network. You're not looking, you know, you're not opening a web browser and typing every IP address in to see where there's a web server. Um, so just the fact that it gets any interaction at all 
is suspicious at best, malicious at worst. So that eliminates these false positives, the idea that like this is an alert that was, was caused by nothing, it's noise, because we know that there is no expected use of this service. So anytime someone touches it, I have an issue that is worth investigation. And that's really the power and capability at the core of deception technology and honeypots in specific. Okay, yeah. And so what, so this is another bit of a little shift here. Um, so what is the priority for implementing these kinds of honeypot or deception technologies in industry? So I, you talked a little bit already about the penetration in regulated environments and government agencies and how that's pretty, pretty strong. Um, but what on the, on the commercial side, uh, and specifically the smaller to medium businesses, is there much of an incentive right now for people to implement these kinds of technologies, or is it still early in the majority of organizations' uh, cyber plan or cyber strategy, if, you, uh, if that's the right terminology? Excuse me if it's not. Um, but, but yeah, can you speak to a little bit about how these kind of technology offerings fit within current cybersecurity frameworks? So I think they have a very strong role to play in detection. Um, I think there's a lot of capability to be had um, with very little uh, resource requirement to do so. That said, uh, I, don't think, I don't think you can go into an entirely immature small or mid-sized business and say, okay, let's start with, by putting honeypots on the network. Um, it really has to start with what do we have? What, you know, what, is the, what does the network look like? What systems do we have that we have to protect? What controls do we have in place? And then the logs that are coming from those systems and devices, how are we processing those? If you can get them to at least a maturity level where they have an event monitoring uh, capability, then honeypots have a great fit and they're a next logical step. You can deploy them, they can feed good logs in, and you can train them on how to handle uh, events that come from them as well as the events that come from other logs. But honeypots are not a panacea. You can't just drop one honeypot sensor in a network and, and call this thing secure. It's a part of a holistic process of prevention, detection, response, uh, all, of, all of those capabilities. So I think to answer your question more specifically, I think as we look across the mid-size and small business space, they are just now starting to get to uh, a level of capability that includes effective detection. We're pushing hard to get them to build uh, detective capability and detective maturity. As they do so, honeypots, in the next three to five years, deception technologies in the next three to five years, become a clear and easy value proposition uh, that is trivially achievable by most small and mid-sized businesses. And I think you're gonna see a revolution in that space and a large scale adoption uh, in that space of a variety of technologies and techniques to tie back to honeypots and deception technologies. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Well, I think that I only have, I think that was it for uh, the core questions here.
The only other question that's a little bit less specific, but I thought I would go ahead and ask you and get your thoughts because I think it's a fun one, um, is what do you think are the greatest gaps in the cybersecurity market today for products that people really need but are not really there? Wow, so this is a great question. And uh, Dale, I, I don't know if you follow me on Twitter, but I, I ask this question of my Twitter and social media audience frequently. I'll ask questions like, what do you really want that you don't have? Or if you could wave a magic wand and fix any one security problem, what would it be? Um, <clears throat> and sadly, the, question, the, the responses I get back are often just uh, adoption of whatever current technology, right? Like making it so that people don't click on you know, every link or whatever. Occasionally, uh, I get pretty decent uh, responses, and inevitably they are tied to either increasing awareness uh, of security requirements to both users and management up to the board. I think that's number one. So if, if somebody could create a tool, a process, a mechanism that allows for sort of rapid skills acquisition and rapid level setting of uh, security requirements to the entire populace of an organization, uh, I think that that is a key area that is, is very needed. The second one usually comes back from folks around some greater mechanism for identi identity management, right? Some, um, some tool that is easy to use but that allows, uh, you know, significantly increased trust that a user is who they say they are. Uh, and I think, I think you're seeing some folks working on that in a variety of ways. I think machine learning can help in that space. Um, I think we can get to some pretty interesting nuance uh, identification mechanisms that are, are useful, but I do think that's still in the next, you know, let's call it three to 10 years. Um, I've got some ideas around it. It's things I'm playing with. Um, in terms of, de of deception, uh, particularly, I do believe that there are still a number of ways and a number of uh, attacker-led initiatives that have not yet been turned around and used against attackers. I think there are... Um, I think there are some techniques that still remain to be tapped that could be very easily used uh, for deception. And I think um, the, in this next three to five years of market space, I think you know, we're exploring it, other folks are exploring it, um, and I think there's a wealth of new techniques and technologies yet to come. Um, and I'll tell you, Vail, the, the other one, if I were a young man sitting in your shoes and I was thinking about a career, particularly in detection and deception, I would look heavily and think a long time about how to use and leverage some of these, the Internet of Things and the distributed plethora of sensors that are emerging in our world and that will continue to emerge. Um, I think there's a lot of really cool stuff that could come out of distributed sensing, um, distributed sensor correlation, anomaly detection via distributed sensors. I think there's a lot of stuff like that that, that um, could really turn out to be quite useful for some of the problems we've just talked about. Did that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that that was exactly what I was trying to get some thoughts on, and uh, I really appreciate you uh, sharing. No problem. Well, Vail, I'll tell you, I've been interviewed by some of the best uh, news and media folks in the industry, and you were just as, as great as them. 
Uh, I really appreciate you asking your questions and, and participating uh, in the podcast. If folks are just blown away by your interview and they want to have a conversation with you and, or, or want to offer you uh, some more research data, where can they find you online? Yeah, so I think uh, the only place that I have a presence online is really LinkedIn, um, unfortunately. And they can, uh, they can always reach out via email as well. Um, I don't know. Let's not give out if, your uh, email address to our, to our security geek readers. Um, I'm sure they wouldn't <laughs> do anything odd with that, but, but let's not. But LinkedIn is a great place uh, to, to, for them to look you up. Um, how would they find you? Let's spell your name so they can find you on LinkedIn. Sure. Uh, V-A-L-E. That's my first name. And then my last name is Tolpagan. T-O-L-P-E-G-I-N. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I think you're going to make a an amazing information security professional. Uh, and I look forward to continuing our conversation on other episodes. Uh, security geeks, if you've been listening to this and, and you dig what uh, Vale is doing, you, you want to talk with him. He's a brilliant young man. Uh, feel free to reach out. He's very friendly, I can assure you. I mean, Vale, you don't bite, do you? I, I, don't, I do not bite. There, there you go. So security geeks, get in touch with him. Uh, look him up on LinkedIn. Maybe we'll convince him to get on Twitter if he, he doesn't have anything else to do for spring break. Maybe he can get on there and, and uh, learn to tweet. Uh, but otherwise, security geeks, <laughs> thanks for listening. Uh, I really appreciate you spending time with us, as always. If you've got any questions, comments, feedback on this episode or any other episode of State of Security podcast, reach out, let me know. Always happy to hear that. If there's somebody else out there that either you think should interview me or I should be interviewing or you just think it would be great to have a fun security conversation with uh, or maybe get drunk uh, and have them just kind of recite some sort of security rules, that would be great too. Always happy to do that here on State of Security uh, podcast. Next, coming up, Lots more podcast episodes. There's uh, a number in the, in the pipeline, some interesting folks that we're talking to uh, and will be talking to. So pay attention. Keep up out there. Keep reading stateofsecurity.com. The blog is uh, very well received. Lots going on over there. Uh, I think we're even posting, I think somebody back in the MSI uh, special studio said that we're up to posting a couple of times a week now. We're getting some really great articles in on blockchain and uh, cryptocurrency threats. I think somebody else said some great phishing and business email compromise content. I know Lisa Wallace has been tearing that up. Uh, she's been doing a great job. Uh, also, if you haven't seen it, they've launched a, a State of Security mini podcast which is literally a bite-sized bit of security information uh, particular to threats or given techniques uh, or defend the flag kinds of uh, things that are going on out there. Check that out. That's the, uh, that is the stateofsecurity.com mini podcast, and I believe they're working on getting that on the Play Store and uh, on Apple iTunes. Uh, and it is always published as well on stateofsecurity.com. All right, that's it. Until then, the sun is shining, the sky is blue, the breeze is blowing, and ladies and gentlemen, I am out of here. Until next time, stay safe out there. Take care.